This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is learning from the Savior and other worthy mentors. In the first half, Kent F. Richards shares his address, Lessons from the Savior's Young Adult Life. Then in the second half, Edward I. Stone speaks on following worthy mentors. I feel honored and humbled to have received the assignment from the First Presidency to speak to you precious young people today. I hope that you have an appreciation of how much the First Presidency care about you and love you. You are among the noble and great. A man arrived home from work to find a small girl sitting on the curb in front of his house crying. He asked the child if he could help, and through her sobs she told him that she was lost. He knew she shouldn't talk to strangers, but if she felt comfortable, he and his wife would help her find her home. I'm sure you must be frightened, his wife said. And the child answered, I was frightened until I saw the picture of Jesus hanging on your wall. Then I knew I would be safe. It is the same for all of us. The answer always is Jesus Christ. At times you may feel that you are sitting on the curb, lost and afraid, but if you will look to the Savior, He will guide you safely home. He is the one infallible source of help for each of us, my dear young adult friends. One of the most profound and sublime of gospel understandings is the doctrine of law. It is stated so simply in the Doctrine and Covenants, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. By law the Father governs us with His great plan of happiness. He sent His Son to show us the way. We learn of Him. We follow Him. We have faith in Him. We pray in His name. Because of His enabling Atonement we can grow, repent, and do what is necessary to invite the fullness of Heavenly Father's blessings. And we do all of this by law. Within the law, each of us is fully responsible. To have it work in our lives, we must act. We must stand up from the curb and follow Him. In my sweet interactions with young people in both single and married stakes and as a mission president, I have seen how each young person must discover and then choose to walk his or her own personal path. Sometimes we are tempted to measure our progress by looking at what others are doing or have achieved. Your path is unique to you. Only you can receive heavenly guidance to pursue your path. If you choose to take detours, then you and only you can find your way back. President Eyring taught, Heavenly Father has perfect foresight. He knows each of us and knows our future. He knows what difficulties we will pass through. He sent His Son to suffer so that He would know how to succor us in our trials." Christ understands and is aware of your personal young adult decisions, your questions, hopes, dreams, and needs, the intents of your heart, and even your temptations. These key years are vitally important in your eternal life. No longer are they just preparatory years for your future. They are your future. Of course you will continue to grow, 
but the now of your young adult years is foundational to your divine destiny as an heir of eternal life. The answers for you are always in Jesus Christ as you do your part to follow Him. Will you look carefully with me at Christ's own young adult years to find patterns that you may follow as you answer the whys, whats, and hows of life? How did He prepare and navigate His own path? What specific lessons did He learn? What did He need to do to achieve the fullness of His mortal experience? Let's look at four things that Christ Himself did in His formative years. First, Christ learned through His own experiences. We must remember that He came to mortality as a God. In condescension, God Himself came down to the lowest station in mortality, yet was full of grace and truth. He was not here to be tested as we are. He was already God. He didn't need to learn faith. He had all power, all knowledge, and held the keys from His Father for the salvation of all of Heavenly Father's children. Yet with all that, He did not possess the fullness at first. He, God the Son, had to learn some things in mortality that He apparently could not have known otherwise. Paul tells us that He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. The Doctrine and Covenants teaches us in section 93, And I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace, until he received a fullness. And I, John, bear record, and lo, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, and sat upon him, and there came a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. And I, John, bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father. This completeness for him came after his years of preparation, at the age of 30, as he was about to begin his ministry. These 30 years, his formative young adult years, were to teach him the things he personally needed to understand by experience. What about you? Can you identify your own learning and applying of eternal principles of the law through your own experiences? Are you filling your soul? You can become more complete men and women of Christ, especially in these stretching and learning years of today. I suspect that even in Christ's learning years, He developed through a multitude of small choices rather than just a few monumental decisions. You may not even recognize the significance of little day-to-day choices that you make today until later in life as you see the unfolding of the consequences of your choices today. I decided early that I wanted to become a physician and, because of circumstances, was able to start at the university early. I focused on completing as many pre-med courses as possible before my mission and even went to school through that summer so that I could finish the physics series. Because I had nearly completed my pre-med requirements, with permission, I took the MCAT test on a Saturday while I was in the language training mission before my mission to Mexico. As I look at it now, it seems impossible, even crazy. But that crazy yet inspired process 
allowed me to come home, apply, and be ready to start medical school just weeks after my sweetheart Marcia and I were married. I was 22. I couldn't foresee the future, but a step at a time it unfolded and felt right. More important than our secular details, which can be measured, things were happening inside of me and inside of us as a couple. We were blessed with two sons while in medical school and three more sons during my residency. We paid our meager tithing, as you do, and learned to contribute fast offerings. We read scriptures daily, prayed, and attended the temple, as you do. We accepted callings and served others, even when seemingly inconvenient. This wonderful process of learning, applying, and becoming was happening for us. We were experiencing what we personally needed to know and understand and could not learn any other way. Second, Christ grew. In the very few verses of scripture that we have describing Christ's young adult years, we learn about the patterns of his learning process. He, quote, increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. He waxed strong. While growing up with his brethren, end quote, he learned and applied the very celestial attributes he later taught. He was always perfect, but surely his young adult growing years were not easy. Did his siblings even like him? Did they understand him? What was daily life like? Did he get sick? Did he want to heal them when they got sick? In Christ's later life, he taught, likely reflecting upon his own experience, that a prophet has honor except in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house." End quote. His was not a test of faith, but a test of constant perfection and with complete knowledge and power within an imperfect world. Waxing strong must have included for him as it does for us perfecting those very attributes that he exemplified. Please note that your growth is not defined by external circumstances or appearance. Your growth is personal and comes from within. You are defined by how you discover your own path and then overcome all of the obstacles that seem to make it hard to progress. Elder Neil A. Maxwell often taught about our, quote, customized curriculum, end quote, that which we personally need to learn and experience. I remember during those difficult years of medical training, working more than a hundred hours a week at the hospital, trying to support a little family, and serving in heavy church assignments, hearing Elder Boyd K. Packer talk about the, quote, packages of provisions, end quote provided personally for us at critical times along the way. The Father knows our needs and knows our future. He sends us the sustaining blessings just as we need them, but in our experience only when we are doing our best. Increasing in wisdom, stature, and favor requires our moral agency and action. I asked our children, former BYU students, to share key lessons they had learned here. One said, I had to decide what was important and do it, even when it was hard. In the university stake in which I most recently served, we saw these same lessons unfold in the lives of precious young married students 
who were seeking high educational goals even when it seemed impossible, beginning a family even when desperately poor, humbly serving the Lord, especially when it was hard. Hard has always been part of the formula. Hard seems to be required for growth. The Savior learned and suffered through deep, personal, searing contradictions and indignities, which He humbly allowed. Quote, Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, for in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor us that are tempted. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. End quote. In Joseph Smith's deepest learning experience in the Liberty Jail, the Savior taught him that he needed to learn by his own experience the attributes that he, the Savior, had perfected. Perhaps these very attributes represent the fullness that we are all seeking to attain. He enumerated them patience, gentleness, kindness, meekness, persuasion, love unfeigned, and long-suffering, not only suffering the contradictions and indignities of life, but humbly allowing them. The prophet Lehi foresaw the Savior in that indignity and suffering, and the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it, and they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. You too must learn and apply these celestial attributes as he did. Sometimes they may seem to be forced upon you, but you cannot learn the fullness without them. Third, Christ waited upon the Lord for the time of his ministry to come. End quote. Did his waiting mean inaction or just playing the equivalent of video games while waiting for circumstances to come together to make it easy to begin his ministry? At age 12, he urgently said to his mother after teaching the elders in the temple for three days, I must be about my father's business. Then he was required to be patient and wait another 18 years to begin his critical mortal ministry. Surely this was a difficult, stretching time as he experienced the infirmities that are common to us all. Throughout this learning process, he was tutored by the Spirit. Isaiah taught, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. End quote. Christ did nothing but the will of His Father. He waited for His Father's will and then fulfilled it perfectly. Quote, and Jesus Himself began to be about thirty years of age, having lived with His Father. And after many years, the hour of His ministry drew nigh. End quote. May I share with you a time of waiting upon the Lord in our family. We asked our teenage children to be home by 9.30 on a Saturday night. There would be an envelope waiting. One of the children read aloud over the signature of the First Presidency a mission call for our family. Suddenly everything changed. 
the football team, the dance company, violin and piano lessons, lawn jobs, friends and dreams. There were tears. We went from room to room that night, wiping brows and rubbing backs. In our 17-year-old son's room, we found him ramrod straight on the edge of his bed looking across to his bulletin board where there were pictures of his football team, his brother on a mission, his family, the prophet, and a picture of Jesus Christ. By morning, all eyes were dry, and we sang sitting on the second row in sacrament meeting, I'll go where and when and how and why you want me to go, dear Lord. We waited to find out where that would be. We waited as we put our lives in order, shifted vision, adjusted expectations, and squared our shoulders. We waited and watched through each new step, through the living of it, and through what was hard and what was wonderful, until years later each child in his or her own way said, Everything that is good in our lives is because we served. We each come to learn our Heavenly Father's will for us, but the Lord's timing is not always our timing, yet His way is always good. All things work together for good in them that love God." If there was great purpose in Christ's waiting upon the Lord during His young years, there must be a vital need for you also. Faithful, patient waiting implies that we strive daily to do the little things—daily scriptures no matter our schedules, daily prayers with hearts drawn out always, daily worthiness for the companionship of the Holy Ghost, and daily diligence to keep our environment fit for the Spirit. Are you waiting for some external circumstance to compel you to action? Are you waiting to be perfectly assured of the end before you dare to begin? Are you waiting upon the Lord or sometimes just waiting until you graduate or marry or begin a family or qualify for life's work before you fully commit? When does your ministry begin? Is it now? Don't you think that waiting upon the Lord meant for Him exactly what it means for you? doing what still needs to be done to wax strong, to increase, to grow, to prepare every day to be ready for the next choice or learning experience. Young adult years can seem to be all about you. Rightly, you are focused on your education, hopes, dreams, and goals. You have responsibilities and important things to do. But when everything threatens to revolve around you and only what you want, when, how, and with whom, then it's time to consider a caution. President Eyring said in his recent address at the Colloquium on the Family at the Vatican that the root problem in families and in marriages is selfishness. You must learn now, my dear young friends, to become unselfish so that you can be happy in marriage and family and life. As you genuinely serve others now, you will be more able to give of yourself eternally to your spouse and to your children. Brothers and sisters, be sure that the timing of your willingness to enter into marriage is not affected by any degree of selfishness. As you learn to look outside yourself, you open unending possibilities of joy and happiness, and you will come to know even more personally your Heavenly Father's gifts to you. Fourth, Christ made covenants and received ordinances. 
Like each of us, Christ began with baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. The ordinances are the greatest eternal privilege that the Lord has made available to us in mortality. Accompanying covenants allow access to the full blessings of the Father, who is bound by eternal law to keep His promises to His faithful children. It is His work and glory and that of His Son to prepare us for the fullness of His blessings. But by law He can only bless us after we have made covenants with Him and are faithfully keeping them. Even the blessings of the Atonement can only come freely after we have made covenants at baptism, continually apply them in our daily lives, and renew them at the sacrament table regularly. And then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins that ye become holy without spot. The temple is where we participate in the covenants and ordinances that extend beyond this mortality and endure throughout all eternity. There we are invited to proceed forward in progressive covenants to help us to prepare for the highest blessings Heavenly Father has to offer. In the ordinances, the power of godliness is manifest. Only in the temple can we make eternal covenants that embody truth, understanding, purpose, spirit, power, and meaning, and which teach us who we are and who we can become. In March 1844, the Prophet Joseph Smith met with the Twelve and taught, We need the temple more than anything else. End quote. Young friends, you need the temple. You need the temple perhaps more now than at any other time in your mortal life. Elder John A. Widso said, Temple work is of as much benefit to the young and the active as it is to the aged who have laid behind them many of the burdens of life. The young man needs his place in the temple even more than his father and his grandfather who are steadied by a life of experience. And the young girl just entering life needs the spirit, influence, and direction that come from participation in the temple ordinances." I had the privilege recently of being with an apostle of God as he gathered his large family around a ceiling altar during a temple open house. He told his dear ones that everything we do in the Church is to prepare them to come to the altars in the temple someday. A son recently shared with me how important the temple was to him when he was a single student making weighty decisions. I felt it among young couples who hardly a dollar passed needing assistance themselves, faithfully contributed tithing, fast offerings, and even to the Perpetual Education Fund. I saw it again as I met with the ordinance workers from the Provo Temple recently in their annual devotional and was brought to tears as I asked workers who were under 30 years of age to stand. Fully one-fourth of the congregation stood. More than 900 young endowed brothers and sisters are serving. Every one of you can hold a current temple recommend, either a limited-use recommend or a full recommend. Your bishop is there to guide you and help you to qualify yourself. Holding a recommend, you can use it regularly and frequently. You only make and receive covenants and ordinances for yourself one time. But each time you return to the temple as proxy for others, your own blessings 
and promises are renewed. Your bishop is the key as you consider when it is right for you to receive your own endowment. Counsel with him. He will know the recent direction of the First Presidency regarding the appropriate circumstances for you, especially you sisters, who desire to go to the temple. As you and your bishop counsel together, and as the Spirit confirms that you are ready to receive this great blessing for all of the right reasons, you may do so. You are blessed to have a very busy temple here and other temples nearby. You know that going to the temple involves a plan, a little sacrifice, and even some opposition. Sometimes the baptistry is crowded or the sessions full. You might have to wait longer than you hoped. But the spiritual power, revelatory help, and inspired insights will come no matter the details of your temple worship. Don't stay away because it may take longer. Come to the temple for the living water. Do your very best, and the Lord will honor your efforts. Hold a recommend, my dear young friends, and do the best you can to use it regularly and frequently. Then watch for the blessings. Brothers and sisters, we have looked to Christ for guidance in your young adult years. We have seen that in His young years He learned, He increased, He waited upon the Lord, he made covenants and received ordinances. You, too, can learn through experiences on your own personal path. You, too, can increase with consistent directional movement forward, finding happiness all along the way. You, too, can wait upon the Lord, acting with energy and faith, doing the very best you can as you watch for His timing and His ways. You, too, can make covenants and receive ordinances faithfully keep them, renew them, and watch for their promised blessings. Eternal law declares that you and I must do our part to be ready to receive all that Heavenly Father intends for us to have. Dear friends, as you follow this pattern from Christ's own young years, you will be blessed and come to live and love the Christ-like attributes that He exemplified. The Father sent His Son to show us and to teach us. He is the one reliable source and He will give infallible help if you will receive it now in your young adult years. At times you may feel that you are sitting on the curbs of life, lost and afraid. But if you will look to the Savior, He will guide you safely home. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. My witness to you today, dear friends, is that in all of your circumstances, the answer is in Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is learning from the Savior and other worthy mentors. We've just heard from Kent F. Richards. After the break, we'll return with Edward I. Stone for Following Worthy Mentors. This is Finding Center a daily hour of spiritual focus. 
Our theme today is learning from the Savior and other worthy mentors. Next is Edward Eyestone, BYU track and field director and men's cross-country coach at the time of this address, titled Following Worthy Mentors. Several weeks ago, I came home from work and announced at the dinner table to my wife and two of my daughters that I would be speaking at the BYU devotional on September 29th, today. My wife, Lynn, immediately said, Honey, what an amazing opportunity, and it will still be early enough in the semester where people will actually be there. <laughs> Lynn, I'm happy to say that you were right. There actually are a lot of people here, and it is my prayer that over the next half hour, I could share a few thoughts that would encourage you to have perfect attendance for the rest of the year. Thirty-five years ago—can it be that long?—I was a freshman at BYU. As great and exciting as BYU athletics are today, those were in some of the golden years of BYU sports. Jim McMahon threw long touchdown passes to Danny Plater, and in basketball, Danny Ainge and Devin Durant were ruling the court. The track team was also bursting at the seams with greatness. Many of my teammates were already All-Americans, and Mormon distance running would soon lead to a Runner's World article entitled The Storm and Mormons. It was into this athletically charged environment that I found myself as an unproven freshman, a recent graduate of Ogden's Bonneville High School. Each day as a team, we would pound out 10-mile runs, tempo workouts, or mile repeats. On occasion, we'd run to the top of Squaw Peak. At the end of such days, we would usually end up in the athletic training room where a whirlpool bath or steam room awaited. Some of my older, more decorated teammates also enjoyed a weekly ritual that I envied. Ole Jokinen was our cross-country and track athletic trainer. He had grown up in Finland where he had been an accomplished national-class boxer. Later in life, he learned the art of healing aching muscles and speeding recovery by putting those strong boxing hands and shoulders to use, giving deep athletic muscle massage. I watched as Doug Padilla, a decorated All-American, would jump on Ole's padded table, and Ole would soon have Doug squirming as he worked first his quadriceps, then his calf muscles, always ending with the hamstrings. And at the end of each 20-minute massage, Doug was usually much more relaxed, and as Ole finished up, he would say, with his thick Finnish accent as he shook out his hamstrings, soup in a sack, soup in a sack, that is what your muscle should feel like, soup in a sack. <laughs> After this final Ole blessing, Doug would usually slide gently off the table, a picture of relaxation and recovery. After witnessing this procedure for a number of weeks, I decided it was time for me to enjoy some of Ole's special treatments. So as Doug slid off the table, I jumped on and casually said to Ole, Yeah, Ole, I want what he just had. Ole looked at me somewhat disdainfully as he squinted through his glasses. What is your name? he asked. Uh, Ed Eyestone? Hmm. Stoneye, he said. And Stoneye would be his name for me for the next ten years. Stoneye, there is a saying in Finland, it goes, Alla tula mustaruti piculinut. Do you know what that means? No, Ole, I'm a little rusty on my finish. It means, do not waste the black powder on the little birds. <laughs> do you know what that means? Yes, I said, it means I won't be getting a massage today. And as I slunk off the table, he said, Stone Eye, get back on the table. 
And then for the next 20 minutes, I enjoyed that exquisite pain as he first worked on my quads, then on my calf muscles, and finally on my hamstrings. And as he finished, he said, soup in a sack, soup in a sack. That's how your muscles should feel like soup in a sack. Ole Yulkinen knew the proper technique for a deep finish sports massage, which I'm sure is one of the reasons I stayed relatively healthy over the course of my running career. More importantly, Ole knew that in serving others, it was impossible to waste the black powder on the little birds. For the Lord loves his little birds and knows when even one sparrow falls. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. I am grateful for all those that wasted their black powder on this little bird over the years. And one of our great challenges as students and faculty is to find great role models and mentors like Ole Yulkinen and to learn from their accumulated wisdom. May we have the courage to ask for help from all the Ole Yulkinens that the Lord puts in our path. Similarly, we should daily pray for opportunities to share our knowledge, wisdom, and time with the little birds that flutter into our lives. As we do so, we express our love for our Savior, for He has said, Lovest thou me, then feed my sheep. As the father of six daughters, I've always looked for better ways to connect with my girls. For example, each knows that she is, she is my favorite, and I take the advantage of every opportunity to express that to them, both privately and publicly. It was easy with Erica, favorite daughter number one. She got a three-year head start on her closest sister, and she was always interested in sports, so there were many days spent hitting fly balls, hiking, kicking the soccer ball, or even playing basketball, a game which she excelled in enough to walk on at BYU, despite my ineptness at the game. Andrea and Ellie, favorite daughters two and three, enjoyed cross-country and track, a fact that made attending their races all the more fun, because in addition to watching and cheering their races, I could do a little recruiting of other athletes on the side. My cheer of make their lungs bleed to Andrea, although initially intended as a joke, became a standard battle cry at all her races and to this day is a code for good luck between us. In fact, this morning I received a text from Washington, D.C. It ended with, make their lungs bleed. <laughs> You've been forewarned. <laughs> with Ellie, the importance of a good attitude early in the race led to the cheesy but memorable cheer of happy face, happy race. But Claire, favorite daughter number four, gravitated more to the music drama side of the continuum. I was perfectly content in attending recitals, music programs, and elementary and junior high productions. But the summer going into her ninth grade year, I decided to step it up a notch. And despite the fact that I had last been on stage 35 years earlier, as a wolf who develops a conscience in the Ward Roadshow, we both ended up in a summer community theater play of Annie Get Your Gun at the Sierra Theater in Orem, Utah. As a result of that experience in the fall of 2011, I was invited to audition for a production of the musical White Christmas performed by the BYU Music and Drama Department. White Christmas would play the month of December leading into Christmas and would feature mostly music, dance, and theater majors. These guys were pros. They had been in productions for most of their young lives, and many, if not all, will go on to professional careers in the performing arts, some on Broadway. I'm sure the only reason they had opened up the role of General Waverly, the stern army general with a heart of gold to the outside, was they wanted someone older for the role. And although it might be a stretch for such a young-looking 50-year-old at the time to play a retired general, 15 years my senior, I figured that was what acting was all about, and I went to the audition. 
When I arrived, I was introduced to the director, George Nelson, a professor in the theater department. He asked me to sing a few bars to make sure I wasn't completely tone deaf and to read a brief monologue. Fortunately, there was no dancing required, as the general had recently taken some shrapnel to the leg. The monologue was of General Waverly saying goodbye to his troops. I read it through once in my mind and then proceeded to read it out loud for the director. I attempted to convey the gruffness and authority of a World War II general. Unfortunately, my interpretation came out sounding more like a combination of John Wayne from True Grit and Arnold Schwarzenegger from Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> when I finished and looked at the director's table, I could tell by the sideways glance and the pursed lips I hadn't been too convincing. But instead of dismissing me outright with a wave of the hand and a next, Brother Nelson exhibited true mentorship as he flexed his directing muscles. At that point, George looked me firmly in the eyes and said something to the effect of, Ed, that was okay, but let's try it again. You're a coach, right? And you work with young men. As a coach, I imagine you form close associations with these guys. You put in a lot of time with these guys as you lead them into battle and the races, correct? Now, this time I want you to put yourself in the position of this general, but imagine instead that these soldiers are the young men that you coach every day. You've been serving side by side with these young men for the last two years. You've, you've risked your life. You've been wounded in battle as a result of saving some of their lives. You've seen men that were part of this group make the ultimate sacrifice in fighting for their country. These are your boys, and, and you have to leave them now. You may never see them again, and, and some will be killed before the end of the war. Now take a minute and try it again. During that minute, I thought a couple of things. One, I was in way over my head. <laughs> Two, I thought about my father, who'd been a paratrooper in World War II, and the greatest man that I ever knew. And three, I did what George asked me to do, and I thought about my boys, the young man that I get a coach here at BYU, the championship races that I had witnessed them run, and the personal sacrifices they had made. I then attempted to read the farewell monologue. The result was a much different performance than the initial superficial reading. As I finished the reading with thoughts, of my own team and father, my eyes filled with tears and my voice slightly broke with emotion as General Waverly said his final farewell to his men. As I finished the reading this time, I looked to the director's table and was greeted with a smile as George said, that was much better. And I said to myself in all humility, nailed it. <laughs> the difference, however, had been in a great director. I'm grateful for those next three months as I got to rub shoulders with real pros. It was fun to see those same qualities of talent, hard work, dedication, sacrifice, teamwork, and coaching that make a successful sports team come together also make a successful stage production. My goals were modest, mainly not to get in the way of the true professionals who were out on the stage. The play was sold out for all of the performances. However, when the reviews came out, we were all anxious to see how we had been critiqued. The production received very favorable reviews, and the Deseret News, November 16, 2011, used such phrases as energetic choreography with high-stepping, attractive performers. My fellow performers were praised by name for their onstage enthusiasm, fully formed characters, plum performances, and for singing and dancing with vigor. When I nervously read my own review, it said, and I quote, 
Ed Eyestone, who played General Waverly, looked the right age for the part. <laughs> Nailed it. Broadway, here I come. At the end of the run of the play, I had a chance to introduce my wife, Lynn, to George Nelson, my new theatrical mentor. He paid me the biggest compliment and gave me the best review when he said, Ed takes direction well. Everyone loves to give direction. It's fun to tell others what to do and when and how to do it. However, taking direction is a serious challenge for most of it because pride turns direction to criticism in our mind. Despite great inflation, not every paper we turn in at school will return with a gold star and a smiley face at the top of the page. How we handle criticism, or better said, how we handle direction, ultimately is a measure of our character and will help determine how far we go in life. If we can embrace direction rather than look at it as criticism, we are much more likely to learn and improve. If we are offended by direction, we are most likely to become stagnant and wither. Ultimately, taking direction well requires us to trust in the director. When we trust in the director, we check our pride at the door and become humble. It is only then that we truly maximize our learning potential. On those occasions when we are required to give direction, be like George Nelson and give good direction. Many times this just requires taking a moment to consider the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do unto you or direct others as you would have them direct you. At the audition, George could have easily said, Eyestone, that was the worst impression of John Wayne I've ever heard. Please never step on my stage again. But instead, he made the effort to give good direction and search for just the right words to elicit a better performance. Fortunately, here at BYU, we are pleased to not only have many worthy mentors in whom we can trust, but we worship the divine and perfect mentor of us all who has said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. If we could spend more time trusting and taking direction well, and less time giving direction and worrying about criticism, I believe we would be a happier and a more productive society. Kyle Perry was a track athlete recruited from Alta High School here in Utah. After returning from a mission in New Jersey, Kyle began what would be a very successful track and cross-country career here at BYU. However, at the beginning of his junior year, he admitted to being somewhat frustrated by the fact that despite being an All-American, he had not yet been able to break four minutes in the mile. Fifty years ago, the sub-four-minute mile was considered a nearly impossible physiological feat, although when Roger Bannister finally accomplished the task in 1952, a succession of others soon followed. However, it is still considered a landmark accomplishment, and far less people have run sub-four, about 1,400, than have climbed Mount Everest, over 4,000. Kyle's PR at this time stood at four minutes and five seconds, certainly a better-than-average college time, but far from world-class. At the end of cross-country season that fall, Kyle came into my office with a proposal. Coach, he said, I feel like in track I've kind of plateaued. I'm stuck at 4.05 and I'm not getting any faster. Well, I asked, what are we going to do about it? He said, I don't think there is one single thing I can do to cut off five seconds, but I do think there are ten things I can do that can each cut off half a second and together they will total five seconds and get me under four minutes. He then pulled out his list that read something like this. For the next three months, I will. 
do my morning runs, stretch after workout, do core five times a week, get to bed before 11, twice a week lift weights, sprint drills twice a week. The last four changes were dietary in nature. Eat breakfast every day, no more ice cream, no more Diet Coke, no more candy. Would all benefit probably from those last four. <laughs> after going through the list, he added, Coach, on February 2nd, the track team is going to Seattle for an indoor meet, and I'm going to break four minutes for the mile. He then turned the list into a legal binding contract by signing it at the bottom of the page. I signed it as well, and we posted a copy on my wall and in his locker. Over the next three months, I met regularly with him for his daily workouts, and he let me know how his ten small things were coming along as well. As we flew to Seattle that first week of February, he was brimming with confidence. Not only had he paid the price on the big things, like running 80 miles a week and never missing practice, but he also made the additional sacrifices of the small things that he felt would make the ultimate difference. On February 2nd, at the University of Washington indoor track, after a slow opening three laps, Kyle ran 57 seconds for his last 400 meters and became the 302nd American to break four minutes for the mile, running 359.16. Contrary to popular opinion, he found that sweating the small stuff was necessary to accomplish big things and get him to a whole new level. Building on his breakthrough, Kyle won the national championships in the steeplechase that next year. My time working with Kyle Perry helped reinforce the scripture found in the Doctrine and Covenants. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. So often we find ourselves looking for that big break, that huge testimony-defining experience, the job or investment that will set us for life, or the bolt of lightning and fireworks when we find Mr. or Ms. Wright. Some of you are waiting for that, aren't you? While those events can occur, more often than not, it is by consistent, competent effort by the small things that we pay attention to that ultimately and eventually lead us to excellence. Consistent competence equals eventual excellence, or C squared equals E squared, as I sometimes say. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had this in mind when he said, The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. I would challenge us all to take a personal inventory of some of the small things we can work on in the coming months that will help us break from the spiritual, mental, and physical plateaus in which we might currently reside. My freshman year, there was one goal that sounded like it would etch my name into athletic immortality. That would be being named an All-American. The glorious thing about being named First Team All-American is that from that moment on, you are no longer referred to by your name alone, at least not in college. All-American precedes your name like a title, almost like royalty. Prince Charles, I would like you to meet All-American Ed Eyestone. <laughs> or so I thought it would go. Further, I decided I wanted this title my freshman year. I didn't want to wait until I was a senior. To become All-American meant making it to the national meet and then finishing in the top six in your event. Unfortunately, cross-country season came and went without our team making it to the national meet, so, so too passed indoor season. And so it would come down to outdoor track season to determine if my All-American dreams my freshman year would actually come true. I was running the most exciting event in track and field. 
Some people mistakenly think that that is the 100-meter dash. No, sorry, Usain Bolt. The most exciting event in track and field is the 10,000 meters, 6.2 miles, or 25 laps of screaming intensity. Back then, the qualifying time for 10,000 meters was 29 minutes and 19 seconds. On the final qualifying meet of the year, I ran 29 minutes and 18 seconds and qualified by one second. In a race that lasts as long as an episode of The Simpsons, I qualified by one second. I was the slowest qualifier going into the national meet. But I was ecstatic for now if I finished in the top six. I would be an All-American my freshman year. That year, nationals were held in Austin, Texas, where there was an incredible heat wave taking place. Coach Cheryl James, our beloved distance coach and mentor of the day, tried to prepare me as well as possible for the heat and humidity. Some days it was by doing long runs in two pairs of sweats in the heat of the day. Other days it was by taking a stationary bicycle into the steam room and pedaling as if being pursued by a rabid dog. <laughs> when I arrived in Austin, Texas from Provo, Utah, it was like stepping onto another planet, the planet of liquid heat, apparently. The day of the race, the temperature trackside was over 100 degrees, a fact made painfully obvious by a temperature gauge strategically placed trackside. Although they postponed the race until 9 p.m., the conditions were still dangerously oppressive. The solution was a creative but improvised effort. A garden hose was attached to a nearby sprinkler, and we were counseled that as we found ourselves overcome by the heat, we were to raise our hand high above our head, and the man on the hose would squirt us as we ran past. <laughs> the race began, and by three laps, we were all racing our hands as we man ran by the man with the hose. At first, the water was somewhat refreshing. You've all experienced the sensation of running through the sprinklers. It kind of takes your breath away as you go through. feels good. But after getting squirted four, five, six, seven times, you realize that the water is lukewarm, and that due to the humidity, there is little to no evaporative cooling effect. The lukewarm water instead is running down your legs and pooling in your shoes, and you are sloshing around the track. And then you don't want to be squirted anymore, but the guy next to you raises his hand. <laughs> I knew I was not going to win my freshman year, but I had hope. I had hope for a top six performance, and so I stuck determinedly in sixth place, keying off of a Kenyan from UTEP. Just past the 5K mark, the UTEP's runner's head began to wobble. He staggered and he fell to the infield. Being a caring human, my first response was to stop and render assistance to my poor fallen comrade. But instead, I spiked him and on I went. Yes! I hadn't even had to pass him. He passed out. And now, I was in fifth place and could almost see the All-American certificate proudly displayed above my mantle. Although I don't think I had a mantle yet. Uh, with two laps to go, it was my head that felt like a cherry tomato. And though I was fighting for all I was worth, I could tell I was losing ground. In a race, you never want to look behind you, as that is a sure sign to your chasers that you're tired. But by the sound of the sloshing shoes approaching, I could tell that two runners were gaining, and if both of them passed, I would go from All-American my freshman year to almost All-American. One of the runners passed, and one was now on my shoulder, and I dug for all that I had. I was going to come down to a kick, and that was not my forte. And then something happened. 
Suddenly my world was in slow motion and instead of running in a straight line like you want to do in a race, I was running a little to the left and a little to the right as I started weaving down the track. And I watched as the two runners pulled away from me as my all-American dreams my freshman year disappeared. And things were now out of focus and I was running towards a bright light. Go towards the light. The only clear memories I have after this were being dragged from the track and me saying, I need a finish, and my coach saying, You're finished, Ed. Believe me, you're finished. <laughs> then the man with the hose intervened for one last squirt. <laughs> I came to in the training room at the University of Texas in a metal jacuzzi tub filled with cold water and ice, and next to me was my Kenyan friend from UTEP. The doctors monitoring our conditions explained that our body core temperature had gotten so high we triggered a safety switch at the base of the brain that shuts off all motor activity and hopefully at that point you fall into a cool shady oasis and survive. <laughs> After about 30 minutes in the ice tub, the body core temperature came back to normal and I was able to get up, shower and go back to my hotel. But I was disappointed, really almost devastated. I had done everything right. I had set a worthy goal, committed myself, worked hard to accomplish it, sought divine intervention. And yet I came up a lat short of being All-American my freshman year. It would never happen. Coach James recognized my disappointment and attempted to cheer me up by saying, Ed, that sure was a fun race to watch. It looked like you were going to do it and then you started weaving. <laughs> great, great. Happy to have entertained you, coach. <laughs> then he went on, Ed, today you ran like a horse. He could still tell I was not impressed by the simile. <laughs> so, so he explained further, you know, a good mule you can take up in the mountains, and a mule will do a lot of work for you. Take it hiking or hunting. But, but when a mule gets tired, he will stop and you can push it, you can pull it, you can motivate it with a stick. But until it is recovered, it will go nowhere. But he continued, if you have a good horse, you can run with that horse until it drops over, completely exhausted or completely dead. Today, you ran like a horse. And you know what? That made me feel better. The fact that he thought I had given it that kind of effort. And I think what my good mentor, Coach James, taught me at that time was that life was structured such that many times we're going to do everything possible to accomplish our goals. But the nature of life is that sometimes, despite doing all the right things, we're going to come up a little short. But if we've done everything in our power, if we've run like a horse, then, then that is all that is required. We can hold our heads high, and we're going to accomplish a lot in the process. The other takeaway from that story is that after my mission I returned, I made All-American ten times, but the fact is I don't cherish nor remember those ten times when I had success nearly as much as the one time I came close and Coach James said, I ran like a horse. We often learn more from our so-called failures than from our success. May we take advantage of the many mentors that surround us this year. May we be worthy mentors to those whom we serve. May we not just take direction, but may we take direction well, without taking offense. And may we see the value of gradual steps in the right direction. Let us appreciate the value of work, effort, and struggle despite the result, 
as we run like a horse in all that we do. And may we remember that we have a divine mentor who loves us unconditionally and is always there to lift us when we fall. These things I testify in his name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Learning from the Savior and Other Worthy Mentors, with thoughts from Kent F. Richards and Edward I. Stone. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.